You guys can do better than that. I'm, I'm sure you can do better than that. Anybody ready for week one of Modern Jesus? We're going to kick things off, but I just want to start off by saying, please do not pay any attention to this whatsoever during any part of my message. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. Stay locked in and loaded. Sarah, you're looking at it. Stay locked in. Do not look at this. Don't pay any attention to it. Um, we're kicking off. This is week one of our new series, Modern Jesus, and I don't think I've been this excited for a hot minute, and here's why. Um, I think that there's a lot of people when it comes to Jesus that have some preconceived notions that I think might be inappropriate, might be incorrect, might not be biblically sound. And then for those of us that do have some pretty biblically sound notions about who Jesus is, who he was, what he was all about, um, if you're a Jesus follower, can you just raise your hand? You're just like, I'm in this thing. I'm a Christian. I'm about this thing. I want to follow Jesus. Um, those of you that raise your hand, I think on surface level, you probably are a little bit more insane than the rest of the world that doesn't believe about a Jewish carpenter 2000 years ago from Palestine that called himself God. And you're like, I'm going to follow him. It's kind of crazy. There's a lot about Jesus in his life that doesn't make sense on face value. The Bible even says that those who will follow Christ will sometimes appear to be drunk. The, the disciples were, were, were deemed with this notion. And, and, and some people thought that they were insane. Some people thought they were delusional and they're following some sort of a liar or a lunatic. Surely this man cannot be Lord. Think about it for a second. 2,000 years ago, a man died upon a cross, 33 years of age. He never left more than 100 miles of the circumference in which he was born. He didn't have a, a, a grandiose public education. He was born in a manger next to animals. He was born from a virgin. Do the math. It's weird. And then he comes, and then not only that, but then he claims that he is the Messiah. He claims that he is God, and he claims that he is here to save mankind. That is so weird. And so what we want to do over the next three weeks is take a look at the life of Jesus Christ and question for ourselves, what is it that makes this man relevant? Because there's something that is true. There's something that is significant about the life of Jesus. Nobody has been written more than Jesus. No authors have ever written about any other topic, any other human being more than Jesus. There's never been a book sold more than, than the Bible. There's never been a man painted more in art than Jesus Christ. He is history's most prolific figure Yet when you look at his life, you go, somehow this doesn't equate with my view of what significance would look like. I probably would have done it a little different. And I think it's left our culture going, surely this guy from 2,000 years ago has lost his relevance. Surely this guy from 2,000 years ago doesn't have any room in our lives because now we got an iPhone. Now we got Siri. Now I got a, a nice job and multiple cars and a 401k and I'm in investment accounts and life is good and life is modern. I think I need a modern Jesus. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so the question is, is a guy that never changes relevant today? Some of you are standing in 15-year-old sneakers and you're like, see, I can just hang on to my style. I don't need to change. Jesus didn't change. Go get yourself a different pair of shoes, please. That's not what we're talking about. We're looking for a modern Jesus, and I think what we need is just a modern perspective of how Jesus fits into our lives. And I want to take a look at a characteristic of Jesus's life, who he was as a man and who he is as God, and how that might be applicable and pertain to our lives today in 2019. I want to take a look at just kind of the way that Jesus interacted with unlikely people. The Bible says that when it came time for the, the, the Roman council to put Jesus on trial, they had three accusations, and the one that they trumped on the most was this guy who claims to be God, he's friends of sinners. Now, at face value, you're like, okay, what's the significance of that? But if you think about it, this man was perfect, claiming to be God, and he's hanging out with all of the people that the religious community would say, they're outcasts, they are not for us, they are against us, they have abandoned the way, they have abandoned the ways of God and the laws and the rules of God. He shouldn't spend time with those people. Yet Jesus spent most of his time, when you read through the New Testament narrative, he spent most of his time, I repeat, most of his time with sinners. And they said it was for that reason that we should kill this man. Now, if you read through the New Testament, you start to see something pretty interesting. It seemed to be the most religious, religiously pious people, the people that just absolutely lived by the rule book, the Mosaic law, they lived by the rules. Those were some of the people that were the most uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus, Those were the people that Jesus seemed to get under their skin. He he seemed to screw with the way that they think. He seemed to frustrate them and aggravate them, even to the point that it was the religious community that, that deemed Jesus fit to die upon a cross. It was these people that killed Jesus. Yet, for some reason, Jesus had a way of making some of the most uncommon, unlikely, dirty, broken, misfit people. It was those people that felt the most comfortable in Jesus' presence. When he'd share a meal or he was at a party, he did so with tax collectors. And the tax collectors now, then weren't like tax collectors now. They didn't work at H&R Block. These people were crooks. They were criminals. They were hated. They were some of the lowest of society. And not only that, but Jesus hung out with, with, with alcoholics and drunkards. And he hung out with prostitutes. And, and then the Bible says that he spent time with sick people. He spent time with lepers. And not only that, but he interacted with them and healed them and prayed for them. This guy didn't seem to be the Messiah that they were looking for. But it was the religious people that misunderstood who Jesus was. How was it that sinners felt so comfortable with Jesus? I wanna take a look at a story that's gonna expose some stuff. I think about the way that we think about who Jesus is and what he did and what he is all about. Just to set a little bit of context really fast, Jesus is, is preaching. If you have your Bibles, go, go to, to, to John chapter 8. 
And we find Jesus, and he's teaching a group of people. And as he's teaching these people, um, there's a group of, of Pharisees that come in, and they, they take this lady who they've just caught in the act of adultery, literally in the act of adultery. I'll let you go there for yourself. And then they bring her into the temple, and they throw her before Jesus, and they begin to accuse her. And then they ask Jesus, what do you say about this woman? And they say something interesting. They say, Moses says that we should stone this woman. Now, I just want to give a little bit of context before we dive into this scripture. At this time, the religious community, they, they, they lived by a code of law. And this code of law was called the Mosaic Law. This was a, a list at this time of about 600 plus laws that they needed to live by and perfectly adhere to in order to have right standing with God. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't do so well under those circumstances. And when these started, they started with a list of 10 laws, 10 rules called, do you guys remember what they're called? The 10 commandments. See, you guys are so amazing. I don't even need to teach this. The 10 commandments. And over time, they embellished upon them and developed them and tried to make things very clear for people. And so then they began to live by this code of conduct. And then Jesus comes and he seems to screw everything up. We're going to take a look at the significance of why on earth would some people that live under the law, some people that when they make a mistake, they need to go into the synagogue or into the temple and they need to sacrifice an animal for their wrongdoings. So they need to make amends to be right with God. Aren't some of you grateful that when you make a mistake, you don't have to go slaughter a sheep? Honey, I'll be right back. I screwed up big time. Got to go kill a sheep today in the synagogue. We don't have to do that. So how on earth is this applicable to today? I want to give you a word that embodies the heart behind the law, and it's a word called legalism. Because the church is full of legalism. Legalism says, I must do this in order to have right standing with God. I must obey this in order to be right in God's eyes. I must do this in order to earn God's love and his favor and his acceptance of me. I must live this way in order to be right with God. One of the most lethal things about legalism is when the church is legalistic towards those who come into our buildings. If Jesus was a friend of sinners and welcomed in people that didn't live justly and rightly, why is it that the church of America and abroad, Brussels and Europe, why is it that the church holds people at a distance that don't smell like us, think like us, vote like us, look like us? It's called legalism. I want to read this passage because I believe it's going to disrupt our view of self and our view of others. Jump in with me. We're going to go fast and furious at John 8, John chapter 8. And it says this, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all of the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now, when Jesus sat down, this was a normal posture of a, of a rabbi. They would sit down, and then they would teach their students. And so here Jesus is. He steps into the temple. People flock to Jesus. Just a spoiler alert. When you come to church, 
Make sure people are flocking to Jesus. If you want to know if your church is healthy, look to see who people are flocking towards. They shouldn't be flocking towards a band or towards a pastor or a preacher or a teacher or cool swag or skulls on stage. They should be flocking to Jesus Christ. And this is what's happening. They're flocking to him. And it says, he sat down to teach them. Verse three says, then the scribes and the Pharisees, religious talk, these are just the really uber spiritual people. These are people that, that, that know the word backwards and frontwards. They've memorized large portions of the Old Testament. These guys know their stuff. And the Pharisees and the scribes brought him a woman caught in adultery. Bum, 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 bum. It says, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, meaning they were speaking to Jesus, and they said, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, and then they say, in the very act. I don't know if she was dressed when they brought her into the temple. I don't know what her physical appearance looked like, but they just caught this woman in the act of adultery and grabbed her, brought her to the temple, in the act. And then look what it goes on to say. It says, teacher, this woman was caught in a very act of adultery. And verse five says, now Moses in the law, remember, 600 plus rules that they need to live by and abide by. Moses in the law commanded us that such, that the adulteress should be stoned. Talk about high cost. Talk about high judgment. Like, you don't want to be the one caught in adultery. You're going to get stoned. And it's not the type of stone that we're used to in Colorado. It's a different type of stoned. And it says that she was caught in the act. And they said that Moses says in the law that we should stone her. But then they say, what do you say? Now, let me give you some context. There, this tone of saying, Jesus, what do you say? is a little bit sarcastic. Because when Jesus came to earth, he didn't make the law less. He, he, didn't, he didn't try to dumb it down. He didn't try to get rid of rules. But he would say things like, Moses says that you should not have adultery or you, you, sh you should not sleep with your neighbor's wife. But he says, but I tell you, but I tell you that even if you think a lustful thought, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. So he says, you think that's hard enough? I'm going to make this extremely difficult. If you even think a lustful thought, you've already committed adultery with her. So Jesus would take these rules, all 600 of them, and he, he, he raised the stake of human morality. He made it even more difficult and he says, listen, here's, here's what's happening. And then they come to him and they go, Jesus, Moses says that we should stone her, but what do you say? Can you hear the sarcasm? What do you say, profound teacher? What do you say that we should do to this lady? Moses says, but what do you say, Jesus? Look at verse six, it says, then they said to him, testing him, this is why they asked him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. So these guys are out for Jesus. They're like, we're gonna try to, to uncover this guy. We're gonna try to find him making fault, contradicting the law. We're gonna catch him so that we can imprison him or kill this guy because he's crazy and he's breaking all the rules. But then look what it continues to say. It says, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. 
Doesn't seem like an appropriate response, Jesus. You have an adulterous woman, you have Pharisees, and you got a group of people trying to listen to you teach a Bible study. And they accuse this woman and they say, Jesus, what do you think? And he goes, he stoops down and he writes in the dirt. Stoops down and he writes in the dirt. This doesn't seem like an appropriate response considering the circumstances. Like this is the part of the movie where the, the symphony gets bigger and your heart starts beating like, what's gonna happen? Is he gonna fight him? Is he gonna kill the girl? What's gonna happen? I don't know. It's like nail biting, it's suspense. And it says he stoops down and he writes in the dirt with his finger. Then it says, he did so as though he did not hear them. He's blocking out the haters. Verse seven says, so when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw the stone at her. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her. And he's like, and you can take the first shot. So I can just picture this in my mind's eye of Spielberg. We're recreating this. You got the Pharisees there just tossing their stones up in the air. They're just salivating, wanting to punish this woman for not living up, not upholding the rules and the laws. She is a sinner and she contradicts what we're for. And so Jesus, if you're for us and you're with us, you too will want to stone this woman. And he says, okay, here's the deal. Whoever's without sin among you, you can throw the first stone. Then verse eight says, and again, he stooped down and he rode on the ground. Now, at this point, you're like, Jesus, come on, act your age for a second, okay? Like, this is serious. Quit playing in the dirt. It's like the little kid picking flowers in the outfield. You're like, Jimmy, stand up and do what you're supposed to do. Jesus, stand up and do what you're supposed to do. Yet Jesus kneels again, and he's like, just let me finish what I'm doing. Now, you can read all the way to the end of this story, and it will never tell you what he wrote in the sand. It'll never tell you what he was alluding to. It will never tell you what he was trying to accomplish. It will never tell you why he's playing in the dirt when a prostitute and an adulterous woman is laying before him. The Pharisees are there, and the crowd is watching. It will never tell you why he stooped and why he wrote. You, you, theologians have debated. Maybe he was writing accusations. Maybe he was, he was writing in the sand what he believed about her. Maybe he, was, maybe he was just finishing an illustration of what he was teaching before all this happened. We don't know why Jesus was playing in the mud. So I just started wrestling with it. I started looking at what's happening here. And I was asking God, would you just speak to me? Help me see. And I began to uncover some really fun things in this story. This story is about the gospel of Jesus. He made a public spectacle of this woman and her situation. The Bible says that Jesus stooped. The word literally means he lowered himself to the earth. He lowered himself to the earth. Friends, the Bible says in Philippians that Christ humbled himself, came to earth, became a man, and it says that he was humbled even to the point of death. Can I tell you, I found something really interesting. The word for rote is the Greek word grapho, and it literally means 
to grave. Jesus stooped himself in front of a woman rightfully accused, rightfully caught in the middle of her her actions, rightfully she should have been beaten and murdered on the spot. And Jesus goes, look what I do for people like this. He lowered himself even to the grave. Any of you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not just playing in the sand. He's not just pushing off his haters. He's not just pushing off the accusers. Jesus is is unraveling and unfolding the gospel in front of these people. Look what it continues to say because he goes on. In verse 9, it says, Then those who heard it, everybody who's listening, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. So all the accusers that are rightfully accusing this woman begin to leave when Jesus speaks this kind of truth. Can I tell you, because of what Jesus did, you can stand on the fact that all of your accusers will be counted for not, and look what happens. It says one by one they left, the oldest even to the last, and it says, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, so here Jesus is, the adulterous woman, the perfect savior, what's Jesus gonna do? And when Jesus raised himself up, I don't know about you, but I know a Jesus that was raised up from the grave. He raises himself up in front of this woman, rightfully accused, and he says, lifted himself up, and he saw no one but the woman. He saw no accusations. He just saw the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Jesus is being playful. He's like, where'd your accusers go? Huh? They just wanted to kill you. Where'd they go? Has no one condemned you? Now watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Or you'll miss the whole point. It says, she said, no one, Lord. No no accusers are here. And Jesus said to the woman who was caught in an act of adultery, who was a sinner, who did break the law, who did deserve death. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Friends, the woman in this passage, the woman in this story is not your husband. It is not your neighbor who lives down the street. The woman in this story is you and she is me. Jesus is trying to communicate to these people the heart of God for humanity. And the heart of God for humanity is grace. People, you and I, rightfully accused. Anyone ever committed a sin? Show of hands. Show of hands. If you don't have your hand up, you're sinning because you're lying. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short the glory of God. How many of us have sinned? We all have sinned. We all laid on the floor before Jesus Christ, broken. We, we, we deserved death. We earned death. We did break all the rules. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Friends, this is why Jesus was so provocative. This is why sinners loved Jesus. This is why people that broke all the rules loved Jesus and wanted to be near Jesus. It was because sinners know that they need to have grace. And here this woman is needing grace. 
She never repented, and yet God met her there in the middle of her struggle, and he blessed her before she ever changed her mind, before she ever turned, before she ever changed a single thing about her. He says, neither do I condemn you. This, my friends, is good news. You can commit to that clap. Here's why. This is so amazing. John 3, 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but what? You guys are so smart. Have everlasting life. That's a great verse. But another great verse is the one that follows it. Look what it says in John 3, 17. It says, for God did not send his son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. Condemnation means to accuse someone for a wrong action. We all just raised our hand that we're sinners. We all just raised our hand that we've had some wrong actions. Whether you're a Christ follower or not, you done screwed up. And the Bible says that he didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but watch, but in order that the world might be saved. How? Through him. Now listen to this. This word saved here is the Greek word sozo. Here's what it means. It means that Jesus was sent into the world that he might heal, that he might protect, that he might preserve, that he might do well for, and that he might make whole. Friends, when Jesus came and met this woman, rightfully accused, she made some big mistakes. She done screwed up, just like you and just like me. When Jesus interacts with this woman, can I tell you, condemnation never, never, never crossed his mind. Why? He wasn't sent here to condemn us. He was sent here to do well for us, to make us healthy and make us whole. He was sent here to preserve us. He was sent here to heal us. And best of all, in this woman's case, he was sent here to protect her. Who? He was here to do that for sinners. Friends, if Jesus Christ would have such an extravagant grace towards sinners, this place, our buildings, Red Rocks Church, the church of Jesus Christ around the world should be the most welcoming place for sinners because Jesus was a welcoming place for sinners. I don't know about you, but this message about Jesus, how he behaved, how he conducted himself towards people who don't deserve it is radical. The word grace means to extend undeserved favor, meaning if you think you can deserve it or earn it, legalism. If you think you can deserve it or earn it, it is not grace. There's something really healthy that takes place when you lower yourself and you realize, I'm the woman here. I'm the one being accused. The Bible says that the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. That just means he is the one that accuses God's children. 
the accuser comes to rightfully accuse us. And Jesus says, if all of your accusers aren't here, neither do I condemn you. I wonder, would we treat sinners differently if we had a modern, relevant view of who Jesus Christ was on behalf of sinners? You see, a lot of us extend the legalism card and we reject people in order to make ourselves feel a little bit better. I don't do that anymore. I I used to be a drug addict. I used to deal with that, but now I'm over it. Now I'm free from it. But you, you, you should probably stay out on the outskirts until you clean yourself up. You should probably stay outside the four walls of this church until you look like a Christian. You should stay outside the four walls of the church until you smell like a Christian, until you talk like a Christian. Jesus is saying that is not what grace is. Grace is for people who cannot, will not, and won't be able to deserve it even on their best day. Friends, that is you and me also. I love what the book of Romans says in Romans 5. It says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, he's referring to Adam and Eve's fall, their choice to partake of sin. It says, as one act led to the condemnation for how many men? Who has fallen short? Who has sinned? Just as condemnation was extended to all men because of one man's behavior, it says, so the act of righteousness, what's he referring to? He's referring to what Jesus did upon the cross, the act of grace for mankind. He said, one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for people that look like Christians. For people that adhere to these rules. For people that stopped cussing. For people that walk in the way that Jesus would be super proud, they earned this. We can't change this. Jesus didn't leave a blank for us to fill. He said that justification was extended for life for all men. Friends, this is really good. He's saying because of what Jesus Christ did upon the cross, when you and I stand before God, believers in what he has done, believers in Jesus, we get the confidence of knowing that I stand before Christ with no condemnation. The Bible says that there are no, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means I get to walk into God's presence even when I screwed up, even when I made a mistake. I get to be proud. I get to be bold. I get to pray with confidence. I get to believe that God's favor is on my life. I get to believe that God's going to use me. And that's not based upon what I've done, what I haven't done, but it's only based upon grace. The Bible, come on, you can clap for that. This is good news. The Bible says that our salvation in Jesus Christ is not based upon works, lest any of us should boast, but it is solely in the work and grace of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's why this is important. You, friends, when you believe in Jesus, have no condemnation. There's no qualifying statement to that. It isn't no condemnation when you act well. 
You have no condemnation because of what Jesus did. That's why it's so detrimental when we begin to extend standards that God didn't place on us onto other people in our lives. That's why sinners ran to Jesus. But the problem is, so many of us are running, extending condemnation, piling on the guilt, piling on the shame for people in our lives because we have something that the Bible calls self-condemnation meaning you above all people condemn yourself more than anybody else and you condemn yourself more than even Jesus Christ does. I wanna show you something in 1 John that is just so fun. If 1 John 3.18 says this, dear children, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are one of the dear children. He says, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions in truth. And it says this, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. How many of you want to have rest in his presence? You want to stand before him with confidence like you belong here and like you have nothing to hide? Listen closely. He says, if our hearts condemn us, self-condemnation, when your heart condemns you, he says this, we know we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So if God knows everything about your life and he says, when you come to me, you don't have to fear condemnation. God is greater. God is better. God is gooder than your heart is. Friends, this is really good news because you can't extend grace to people you, you can't remove condemnation off of the people's life in your life if, if you can't first receive God's no condemnation clause for your life. People, when they come into this place, should feel more at home in the local church than anywhere else in the world. They should feel like they belong here more than any place in the world and not based upon their conditions not based upon their, their, their behaviors, but based upon the fact that we're a group of thousands of people who just believe that even on our worst day, we don't stand before Christ condemned. So why would we ever extend condemnation to anybody else? Friends, there's a reason why this message has changed the world. There's a reason why Jesus didn't have to reach and claw for position, platform, authority, and a throne. Grace is so good when you experience it. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you really taste grace, the message spreads. It is good news for the world. I started this message telling you not to look at the skull. Who looked at the skull? Be honest. You're in church. Some of you are like, he told me not to look at the skull, but I looked at it at least a thousand times. I didn't listen to a single word he said. What, why did he tell it? Why did he put a skull on the stage? 
The Bible says that the purpose of the law, the purpose of legalism in the human soul is to reveal and to expose sin. And so the more that you tell people, don't lust, don't covet, don't steal, don't murder, the more that our heart wanders towards those behaviors. Romans says that the purpose of the law was so that sin in our lives would increase. What? The purpose of the law was to show us that we are sinners. They say, don't look at this. Don't you dare think about it. Don't you dare believe it. Don't you dare. And the law was there to expose our sin nature, showing us that we needed a savior. So as many times as I tell you, don't look at the skull, you're going, I can't help but look at the skull. Don't even think about it. I'm thinking about it. And he told me not to. Have you ever felt that way with your sin? I'm not gonna look at porn again. I'm not gonna do it. I'm not even gonna look at it on the internet. I'm not gonna have another drink as long as I live. I'm not gonna speak that way to my spouse ever again. I will never do that ever again. And then what do we do? I've learned I won't drink that much this time. I learned that sleeping around just leaves a hole in my heart. I, but the, I think this one is different. I, I, I think she really deserves it. That's why I'm yelling at her. That's why I'm yelling at my kid this way. That's why I'm reacting this way. They deserved it. Everything in you goes, don't do it again. And you did it again. Why? The, the apostle Paul says, don't boast in the works of the flesh, but in the works of the spirit, which is grace. When you hear this message of no condemnation, some people start going, are you given a pass for sin? Are you telling us that our sin doesn't matter before God? Listen to this. I'm just going to let the Bible teach it to you. Are you cool with that? The Bible says in Romans 5.20, it says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. Don't look at the skull. But as people sinned more and more and they looked at the skull, even though he said, don't look at it, it says God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Aren't you glad that God's grace is greater than your sin? That the more that you sin, God's grace meets you there all the more. Verse 21 says, so as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, watch this. It says, now God's wonderful grace rules instead. Did you know that the grace of God today rules? The grace of God rules over your standing in God's presence. It rules over your grace. It rules over your imperfections. It rules over your lack of identity. Grace can explain who you are. Grace can give you an identity. Grace rules, friends. You don't need to beg for the grace of God. It is readily available and grace is in charge. The Bible says that all authority was given to Jesus on heaven and on earth. Grace is now ruling in this moment, even over your certain situation that you find yourself in. Grace rules instead. And it says, giving us right standing with God. Right standing means blameless, spotless, perfect, and pure. It says, and resulting in eternal life, how? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you know that when Jesus went on the cross, 
when the Father looks at you, it says that all of the righteousness that Christ lived out, he lived perfectly, he lived blamelessly. And it says that all of Christ's righteousness was dumped and lavished upon you, that even on your worst day, when the Father looks at you, he goes, that's Ronnie, but he looks a lot like Jesus. It's Ronnie the sinner, but he looks so pure and he looks so righteous. In my eyes, he is perfect. You wanna stand before God with confidence? Realize you have no condemnation in your life. Not based upon works, not based upon your behaviors, but based upon what Jesus Christ did for you. And then I know what you're saying, does that mean we get to just keep sinning? Apostle Paul got this same question after he spoke this. And look what he says in the next verse after reading this. It says, well then, should we keep on sinning? so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace. And he says this, of course not, of course not. Because he says, if you receive the grace of God, you just want more and more of what God has to offer because it's so good, it's so good. And then he goes, since we have died to our sin, Wait a second, the law told me to to run away from my sin, suppress my sin, fix my sin, change my sin. Since we have died to sin, Jesus on the cross got rid of our sin problem. He killed the sin dilemma. Everything that would keep us from enjoying his presence, enjoying his favor, enjoying his blessing, he says, no, no, no. Today, because of what Christ did, grace rules, grace rules since we have died to sin how can we continue to live in sin if grace is this good you won't want to sin if you're able would you stand to your feet that's why when this lady is laying there a picture of us a picture of the foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do on the cross he looks at this lady She's me, she's broken, she's hurting, she's stuck in sin, probably riddled with shame and brokenness. And God says, I extend no condemnation to you. Better yet, I wanna restore you. Better yet, I wanna give you life. Better yet, I I want to do well for you. Before she ever changed, his heart was to do well for her. Friends, before you ever change, God's heart is to do well for you. His heart is to restore you, to give you life. This is the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners. This is why Jesus had sinners flock to him. They're going, we can't do this on our own. And he goes, perfect, you're the perfect candidate for grace. Because if you could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. So you're the perfect candidate. If you feel in this place, like you can't do this on your own anymore. It is time for you to drink deeply of the grace of God. What Jesus did on the cross is he killed condemnation. Can I encourage you? Keep it dead. On the cross, Jesus killed the power of sin. Keep it dead. Lean to your neighbor and tell him, keep it dead. Keep it dead, keep it dead. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I wanna pray for us. Jesus, we need a reformation and a revival of grace in our country and around the world. God, if people only knew how good you were, 
If people only knew that you were in the business of redeeming sinners, of fixing what is broken, healing what is sick, making right what is wrong. God, we all stand before you needing to be made right, needing to be fixed, needing to be healed, needing to be restored. And it is because of that that we are the perfect candidates for the grace of Jesus Christ. And so God, my prayer is that as Red Rocks Church, we would receive the lavish love and surplus of grace that you extended to us on the cross. It is by no works that we are saved. It is by no works lest we boast, but in Christ alone and in grace alone we stand and we pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ who died for us in Red Rocks Church said, Amen.